Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast today on the show for the very first time. Jamar Tisby, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Happy New Year as we record this. And to you as well. You are joining us from the Mississippi Delta. Am I saying it right? That's correct. On the Arkansas side. On the Ar- Wait, you live in Arkansas or you live in Mississippi? I live in Arkansas. Oh, man. On the Mississippi River. So it's, it's complicated, but my theory is this. So the Mississippi River Delta is referring mm-hmm. to the actual Mississippi River, which would include states such as Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. So one okay. could say I live in the Delta and be in any one of those states. I, honestly, I'm not trying to tell you how to live your life, but saying I live in the Delta, like that sounds pretty sweet. Uh, <laughs> saying you live in Arkansas, like I'm not saying it's bad to say you live in Arkansas, but I'm just saying living in the Delta sounds... Well, anyway. you're, you're, I think you're right culturally and historically because the Delta is its own place, even in the South. Um, there's an author who calls it the most Southern place on Earth. So everything Ooh. you know about the South, it's, 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 it's amplified and highlighted in the Delta. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you uh, did you grow up in the Delta? No, I got here through Teach for America, and uh, really? this was my placement in the Delta. I came from the Chicago area originally. Okay, because you did undergrad at Notre Dame, right? That's right, that's right, that's right. So what, I was what, Midwest, what born Chi- and raised. You're Midwest? Okay, what, what part of Chicago? It's not in the uh, in Chicago. I always make that clear because Chicagoans get really upset mm-hmm. <laughs> if they live in the city boundaries. I live north of Chicago, almost to Wisconsin on um, uh, the the lake area. So uh, we are about forty five minutes from downtown. Cubs or White Sox? You know, I'm not a huge baseball fan. I just I don't. You know, if a Chicago team's winning, I'm rooting for them. Okay, right on. Do you, do you have uh, basketball, football, golf? I mean, what, I don't know. Do you, do. Are, you, are you a sports fan? You, you know, yes, I'm a sports fan. I'm an aggrieved Chicago Bears fan, but really I, I keep up with uh, college football most because of Notre Dame. It's a big football school, so yes, I follow of them course. pretty closely. Yeah, of course, of course. Well, we won't talk about uh, this past weekend for you then. Uh, listen, much listen. respect. I have a theory. We 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 are so close. We need some five star recruits. We just we need some playmakers. We always get the four and the three stars that keeps mm-hmm. us up there. But the Clemsons, the Ohio States, the the mm-hmm. Alabamas, they get the five star recruits. And until we get there, so any five star recruits listening to this, we just need a couple of y'all. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. Poor Notre Dame can't get any funding. Resources are so minimal there. I mean, how how can they survive? It's just a small school trying to make ends meet in a small just town. Scrappy fighting Irish man, just trying to trying to get by. Uh, my good friend Jason Miller, uh, he's a Notre Dame grad and lives in South Bend. He's a pastor there, and so I definitely texted him on Friday and asked him. It was like the fourth quarter. And I asked him when he if he knew when the uh, Notre Dame game started. He said it's it's in the fourth quarter. I was like, yeah, I just want to see if anyone from South Bend oh. is going to show up. <laughs> oh, there you go. I'm a terrible person. Terrible person. Okay, so you did Notre Dame uh, Seminary was at uh, where was it? Uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, okay. Mississippi. Jackson, and then you are working on your PhD right now at That's right. Mississippi State? University of Mississippi. Oh, university. There's a big difference there, my bad. <laughs> it's all Okay, good. now, we, we've got all your, uh, your background set up, but the thing most people know about you is your last book, which has done extremely well. 
Um, <laughs> yes, shaking your hand. Uh, it hit the uh, New York Times bestseller list about a is it a year after it came out? Yeah, about a year and a half after it came out. Yeah, so, which that is pretty uncommon. Extremely uncommon, right? And it, it was due to the uncommon uh, uh, wave of racial justice uprisings and protests that happened. Um, of course, folks will remember the murder of George Floyd, but that was also in conjunction with us finding out about the murder of Breonna Taylor. And then before that, Ahmaud Arbery and video coming out, which many, I think, can pretty accurately characterize as a modern day lynching. So that combination of factors, plus the buildup, you know, this, this stuff never comes out of the blue. It, there's always a, a sort of momentum and an undercurrent, uh, I would say, of the past almost 10 years, going back to Trayvon Martin, uh, resulted in, in literally historic levels of uh, protests with between uh, 16 and, and 26 million people having participated in some form of protest uh, just this past year in in 2020. So it was in the midst of that unprecedented level of uh, concern about racial justice that people started looking to books uh, about race. And thankfully, mine was there. And it was one of the ones that made it on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes, and, and much uh, congratulations to that. And so I, I appreciate y- you being willing to set the stage for why the book probably hit the bestseller list, or at least the context as to why people were interested in reading. But I would also say part of the reason it made the list is because it gave a, a lot of great history and, and background to what our present day circumstances, because there's a lot of books on race, not all of them made on the, the bestseller list. Um, I, I think your book was... Uh, let me say this again, or differently. The reason I recommended it to people was because I really appreciated the way that you just gave us a background, a history of all the things that led up to where we are today. And a, a lot of us didn't have access to that information, or we didn't know the stories behind our present day reality. That's right. That's right. We 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 do a generally poor job of remembering and teaching history in the U.S. And it's probably even worse in the church, uh, at least some sectors of the church. And so... Why do you think that is in the church? um, I think there's a lot that is distasteful uh, when it comes to predominantly white church traditions that we don't want to remember. I also think there's an idea that after the civil rights movement and legislation like the 64 Civil Rights Act, that we're beyond all that stuff now. It's in the past. And so we don't need to dwell on it. That's been a refrain I hear pretty commonly from some Christians. Yeah. I I just had on the podcast a a good friend of mine uh, who is from, uh, he was... He's from Rwanda. During the genocide, they moved to the Congo right on the border. Uh, it, obviously, is, if you listen to the podcast with Ramjan, uh, you know, the genocide spilled out of just the borders mm. of uh, Rwanda into the Congo where he lived. And obviously, he lost family members. Comes back to Rwanda. And one of the things that, that Ramjan has, has talked to me about is that they take 100 days of of remembrance during the time of the genocide to remember what took place. Yeah. And we don't, do you think it, you're more of an expert than I am on this by, by every measure of, uh, of reason, would it be fair to say that while we celebrate black excellence in February during black history month, it's not like we remember the worst of what America's history has regarding, uh, mistreatment of others, specifically slavery and, and Jim, uh, Jim Crow and all the other stuff that has happened. Is that fair? Yeah, you're bringing up a really important point. And in the U.S., it's not simply that we don't remember or don't take the time to look back. It's that we misremember and actually create false narratives. So 
what happened right after the Civil War was the rise of what's called the Lost Cause. Uh, it's it's a, a mythology, really, a, a narrative that Southerners and Southern sympathizers crafted to explain the how their righteous cause could be defeated militarily. And as part and parcel of that, they sort of romanticized the pre-Civil War South. And so you can look at a film like Gone with the Wind as sort of a perfect depiction of, you know, wealthy and benevolent white people, landowning white mm-hmm. people, the um, happy slave, you know, the mammy figure, all of those things are, are part and parcel with it. And along with the lost cause, you get the veneration of the Confederacy. And so you get Confederate monuments, you get Confederate flags, which are still flown with pride by, by far too many people. So in the U.S., it's not even just that we, we don't pause to remember the past. It's that we, um, some people, create a, a, a romanticized, rose-colored depiction of U.S. history, and that is what gets promulgated as history. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to talk too much about uh, your last book. We want to talk about the book that has just come out. It'll come out a couple of days before this podcast releases. The, the title is How to Fight Racism. And uh, let's get to the stuff about uh, tearing down statues, because you, you just mentioned that. We'll get to it in a second. But first, before we jump into that part, talk to me about the differences of Color of Compromise, your last book, and this book, How to Fight Racism. Oh, thank you for giving me that opportunity because I, I want people to be prepared. So the color of compromise is a historical narrative. And a narrative is, is a story. That means you can read it from front to back and, and, and it's a seamless kind of story arc, if you will. And the How to Fight Racism book is a practical guide. And so there's a sense in which, um, you know, you can hop, skip and jump around to different chapters and it'll all still make sense. So the priority in the color of compromise was diagnosing the problem. And the priority in how to fight racism is prescriptions. How can we uh, uh, address the problem? And I really felt like we have to lay that foundation, that historical foundation to really understand the problem of racism and how we got here. And there's multifaceted, obviously, in the color of compromise, just one small piece of that. But it really sets us up, and I did this in the first book. The whole book in The Color of Compromise is a setup for the last chapter called The Fierce Urgency of Now, where I talk about practical solutions. Now, with How to Fight Racism, I extend, you know, essentially what was contained in a single chapter into an entire book. And I saw a gap in the literature, really. Um, So much of the literature about race is about diagnosing the problem from different perspectives, sociological, psychological, memoir, historical, like I did. Um, But the practical stuff, what do we do about racism? That's always crammed into the end of a chapter or the end of a book. And I said, we really need an entire volume, you know, dedicated to this. And really, it could be multi-volumes, right? But um, I I wanted this to be a, a, a question. I wanted this to be, put it like this, the question I get most frequently whenever I talk about racial justice is this, what do we do? Yeah. And how to fight yeah. racism is my book length response to that question. <laughs> yeah. 
because when you're in the profession of writing books or teaching or preaching, it's uh, it's nice to actually get to say, hey, th- th- I'm not going to give you this uh, you know 30 second answer to a very complex problem. Let me give you you know a couple hundred pages on this, and I can really do my thing here. So uh, as you set the book, you talk about uh, the three pieces that you put as kind of like the pillars of this are awareness, re- relationships, and commi- commitments. Is that right? That's right. Commi- commitment. Commitment. Um, give us a brief overview, and then we're going to talk about some of the specifics. Yeah, well, you just named one of the best parts of this model, I think, which is this, it's simple and memorable. And so it's called the Arc of Racial Justice. It's a model I've been developing probably for the past half decade or more. And when people usually ask me that question, you know, what do we do? I would just give this smattering, well, try this, do that, you know, other people have done this. And it was all good stuff, but to me, it seemed really disorganized. Like, what are you supposed to do with that information? And so the arc of racial justice comes along as a framework to help us organize our racial justice efforts. And like um, a stool with, with three legs, you need all three to have a stable base. I wouldn't want to try to sit on a stool that only had two legs or something, right? And I, pretty. I find that um, in our racial justice efforts, we tend to emphasize one or two aspects, but we really need to be intentional about all three. So awareness is very simple. It's all of the stuff you do to build up your knowledge about race, racism, racial justice, white supremacy. It's uh, reading the books, which I hope you'll do. It's uh, watching the documentaries. It's going to the conference. All of those things that build up our knowledge base, which is necessary and essential. Relationships is another crucial factor, especially coming sort of from a Christian lens and the idea that, that all reconciliation is relational, that God, when God wanted to reconcile a people, didn't send a, a tweet or an Instagram story, sent a person, Jesus Christ, right? And mm-hmm. it's that incarnational aspect of um, racial justice that I want to emphasize with relationships and that it takes intention, especially if you're white and in the numerical majority and because of segregation and intentional efforts to keep people apart, you're going to have to really be thoughtful about creating meaningful relationships with black people and other people of color. Cause it's funny and sad at the same time that a lot of white people will say, Oh, so-and-so is one of my best friends or is a very good friend. And they'll be talking about a black person or a person of color. And that person's like, what? <laughs> we barely know. each other. <laughs> no, we're not good friends. You know? So you, you want to make sure that's a reciprocal statement <laughs> that you're making. Um, And so we have to focus on the relational, but then the last part is commitment, especially in Christian circles. A lot of people want to stop at the relational and and understand racism is purely interpersonal. And so if I can say, you know, some of my best friends are black, I don't use the N word, I'm not part of the problem, essentially, right? But then that does nothing about issues like mass incarceration. You know, what's our cup of coffee at Starbucks going to do about voter suppression, What's the panel conversation or the pulpit swap going to do about the fact that black women die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women? So commitment gets to the policy aspect, the law aspect, the, the systemic and institutional manifestations of inequality. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you mentioned early on is that the way, like the political lens through which we see the world shapes how we understand race. If you are a conservative, typically the issue is uh, very much a personal, like personal decisions, personal actions that are going to go on. Uh, the more progressive liberal Democrat 
perspective is going to see this more as a systemic issue. And so I, I think no matter which political perspective you come from, you can say there is obviously racism in the past. We've seen this. We know it's there. Um, we can all say, yes, I need to have friends of people who are different from me. I need to have a coffee shop uh, time together. I need to have relationship time. I need to have people in my home. I need to go to their home. We need to swap pulpits. Everyone agrees with that. But then when you get to the last one, if you view the lens of the world through a conservative perspective, you think, well, these are individual choices that people are making. There's not a systemic issue here. And then all of a sudden, everything falls apart right there. Because mm-hmm. we can we can all get there. We can all believe in the image of God. We can all believe that you know racism is a sin. But we can't get past that issue. If if you see things through the lens that says it's all personal, then I'm not going to worry about the systemic stuff and worry about trying to change that. Yes, yes. Sounds like you've had some of these conversations before, Luke. <laughs> you know, one, once or twice. I'm not saying it's from my church. I'm just saying hypothetically. I've, yes, I've, yes, I've, yes. You're the expert. You take this before I get in trouble. <laughs> um, well, uh, you bring up a good point. Actually, there's no way to talk about this without getting in trouble with certain people. So I just want <laughs> that to be out in the open because so many people ha- sort of shrink back from the conversation because they're like, well, what if this person says this? What if the, this group says that? I can tell do you, you feel that way. Experience. Like I feel that. Like I feel that way. But do you feel that way personally? I used to, and I'll tell you what changed is. Okay. I have tried to articulate this stuff about race, racism, racial justice in so many different ways, and it never fails to tick somebody off. And I came to the conclusion that. It's there's there's no amount of contextualizing, gently explaining, et cetera, et cetera, we can do that is going to prevent those kind of reactions. That's for two reasons. Number one, this is partially a heart issue. There are some people whose hearts are hardened to um, racial sensitivity, and so they're going to react defensively and um, maliciously even sometimes. And number two, the truth divides. Like, we know this from from Scripture. And so if we are speaking truth, then we can expect some people to um, take a different stance and a different side on it. So I just say that as an encouragement to people. But what you're getting at, this sort of individual versus systemic, I think is a fundamental misunderstanding, uh, not only between like liberal and conservative, but also black and white people as we understand and look at race. I'll give Mm -hmm. a concrete example to help contextualize this. Policing, right? Lest we forget, the 2020 racial justice uprisings were spurred by issues of anti-black police brutality, right? There's all kinds of issues of racism. The thing that sparked this latest uprising was anti-black police brutality. Now, when we talk about policing, people have very different views, right? So you have Black Lives Matter, the slogan, then people come up with Blue Lives Matter as almost a rebuttal of that, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. there's this really staunch defense of policing, which, you know, I understand. But understand the way that uh, minority communities, especially black people, have a fundamentally different experience of policing in America than many white people. So for many black communities, police are not seen as those who serve and protect, but more like an occupying force, a force of brutality, a force of surveillance, I can guarantee you, you ask virtually any black man in America, and they have a harrowing story of a police encounter. And I'm talking about folks who haven't done anything near deserving of the treatment that they got, because the automatic saying, well, what did they do 
to deserve, you know, this treatment. Surely the police had a reason. I'll tell you the reason uh, too often is simply because of this brown skin. So anyway, the point being, when you see an instance of police brutality, is it an isolated incident that we look at the individual cop, the individual um, uh, you know, person involved, whether it was a traffic stop or something of that, and say, well, this was justified or not justified based on just this one isolated incident? Or do we look at a pattern, a historic pattern? You can go back to the 60s. Many people have heard of the Black Panther Party, but they don't reference the full name where it was established was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Self-defense from whom or what? From police who were coming into their communities, uh, uh, brutalizing black people in, in certain communities. And you can go all the way back to the origins of the police force, which stemmed to just after the Civil War, vagrancy laws, black codes, convict leasing, all of this stuff. So the point is... Um, we cannot look at issues of racism in isolation. We have to look at it in context. And what I try to set up in the book is not an either or dichotomy. It's all individual or it's all systemic. It's both. But what I need folks, especially white Christians, to understand is that due to systemic limitations, one's options to make good choices are limited. Mm-hmm. And so it's, if, it, if, it's, if your emphasis is all the individual, but you don't take into account that because of poverty or poor education or voter suppression, I don't have as many options as you do to make good choices, then we're going to have a big misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So to get around the different lens through which we see this of personal versus systemic, just telling more stories, like giving more information. I, I don't know. Um, like I, I'm kind of at a loss because I, I, I don't know what to say because I've had the conversations where someone says, well, you know, I don't think there's any systemic racism anymore. I don't think there's any, you know, pervasive, um, you know, things that are set up at a structural level that are against black people. And, you know, I, I feel like you give information, you tell stories, you give experiences and people still go, you know, I don't see it. Yep. I, I don't yep. see it. And, and so I feel like I'm, you know, I, I'm at a loss because as you're describing the uh, the police experience, that's exactly my experience. I've, I've never thought of police as anything but favorable. And you know, I have family members, I have friends who are in law enforcement. Every experience I've ever had has been uh, just extremely courteous and professional, never had anything bad. And so I, I hear enough stories from friends that I look up to and go, oh, well, that's your experience. That's not my experience. And so I'm starting to listen. But there, there are many who are just like, you know what? That's not my experience. I don't see systemic ra- racism. I, I, and so I'm just, I'm done with this. I, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, it's probably easier to start with what doesn't work and (laughs) what doesn't work in trying to persuade someone of the reality of sort of systemic and institutional injustice is data and facts, (laughs) which is totally counterintuitive, right? (laughs) But you're 100% right. That's completely true. Right. I mean, we've had these conversations, whether online or in person, where we have stacked facts from floor to ceiling, and it's just this wall. Uh, People are Mm -hmm. not being persuaded by it because it's deeper than just an intellectual knowledge. As I mentioned before, I think it's, it's a spiritual issue as well that, that, that we're, we're talking about strongholds and principalities. Um, and in all honesty with, with some folks, I'm praying about their, their understanding and encounters with them the same way I would pray for someone who, who didn't know Jesus. And I was trying to tell them uh, uh, about who Jesus has been, to me and, and, and who they could be to this other person too. It's almost like 
evangelism kind of a thing. Um, the other aspect is when it comes to race, it's about identity. It's about story. And that stuff transcends just factual information. Uh, so when we're talking about racism, this is one of the things I've learned living in the South. When you're talking about racism to a white person, even if it's history, you're talking about mama and papa. You're talking about family members, pastors, people they know Never. personally who are involved in some really egregious stuff. And so for them to to say that racism is the problem we say it is, is, is you know, sort of subtly an indictment on their own community, uh, which people are hesitant to yeah. do. The other aspect, and I've learned this from um, psychologists and therapists, is what's really going on is sort of in-group, out-group behavior. And what, what folks who refuse to, to buy into sort of uh, the reality of systemic and institutional racism are doing is even subconsciously considering how their um, community will react, whether it's their church community, their political community, their family community, whatever it might be. There are certain boundaries in every community. And if you cross those boundaries, you are subject to certain sanctions. You're cut off, you're talked about, you're stripped of authority, whatever it might be. So what is almost primary in someone's mind is not, you know, is this information factually true? Is it verifiable? Whatever. It's how can I maintain my status in this group that I, that yeah. I consider highly? And anything that's going to go against, <laughs> you know, them maintaining or raising their status, they're just not going to be open to. No, no, that's very fair. I, I, I had a conversation, and I'm trying to uh to not reveal this person's identity. Um, but this person who I was talking to and they, they were expressing, uh, how they had a, a grandfather, a great grandfather who was in the KKK and tried to explain, well, this is what they actually did. And this is where they started from. And you go, you're making an argument for the KKK. Like, I feel like you lose every time you try to make an argument for the KKK, but it like, like you described, like this is their group, like this is their people, this is their family, uh, this is where they come from, and we all want to fit in, we all want to be a part of the group, and to be fair, like that's also on the other side. Y- you in the book tell a story about the guy in, in seminary who invites you to go get a drink after class, and you're like, is this guy taking me on a date, or like what's going on here? And then you, you had the line where you go, is he a collector? Is he a collect? This is a white guy. Is he a collector of people of color so he can say, I'm not racist because I've got my best friend over here who's black? And th- to be quite fair, like in the last year, there are a lot of people who look like me, who do what I do for a living, who feel the need of, I've got to have. Uh, the image of me and a black person on stage. I've got to have, if I've got a podcast, I've got to have a person of color on, you know, this month to talk about this. I, I, I've got to signal that I'm virtuous in the way that I care about this conversation. And so w- whatever like side you lean on, we all want to be in the group, whether the group is, you know, conservative or liberal or for or against, but like we all want to do that. How do we, how do we like sidestep the propensity just to be in a group and go along with everyone and try to listen to what, like as people of faith, like what God is calling us to do, what is true, what is right. Yes. Yes, man. You, you, you I'm so glad you brought up that story. Um, Cause <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's really important. Um, and, and, and the litmus test I think is, you know, are, am I a collector is, is what I can imagine a listener might be asking themselves. Do I sort of collect black people and people of color in my relationship 
circle so that I can say with some validity that I'm not racist, but it's really not about that person. It's about you in that case. Right. And, and, and how you appear to others. So how can you tell if you're a collector? Well, one question to ask is would, would I still be friends with this person? Even if we never talked about race or I never had a picture with them. So in other words, if nobody knew, you know, and if, um, my relationship with them was based on things other than what they could tell me about race. That's a, those are some questions to ask Mm. ourselves. Um, but to your larger point about, you know, what do we do about this tendency to sort of almost cater to our community and our group and the norms and the mores there first, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to want to belong. It's not a bad thing to want a community. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the church as it should be, is that we are a community, but we're we're a community that's um, supposed to speak the truth in love. Like, that's always the thing. Whatever community you're in, is it a community that speaks the truth in love? And you don't have to be Christian to practice that. It's just the idea of, can we be honest about reality? Can we be honest about our proclivities and our prejudices and can we work to change and, and, and improve that there's no community that's perfect but a community becomes a cult when they, when it allows for no disagreement when you have to toe the party line on absolutely every issue and to even raise a question is to um somehow subject yourself to questioning about your legitimacy and your standing within that group that is moving from community to cult likeness yeah and i think we've seen online the the quickness the celerity with which we turn on someone else and say unclean to you uh if you say the wrong thing if you ask the wrong question if you identify as friends with the wrong person then all of a sudden it's like it's like ancient day lepers except like mm-hmm. when they would go down the street they would yell unclean except now like we'll yell it for you we'll you're mm-hmm. unclean you're, you're we're done with you because you've done this and like that's that doesn't help anyone get anywhere. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found really uh, meaningful in your book is you, you talked about how we should be uh, wary of history in which like there's clear cut like villains and heroes, and then like there's this this clear like march to progress, like we're all going together. And I, I, I had um, one person from my church who reached out to me and said, "I, I just feel like he's a white man." Because when, when we're talking about race, I just I just don't want to feel like the bad guy every time. Like every time we talk about race, like I feel like if we go back, like I'm always the bad guy in the story. If I'm the white person, then I'm, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio in, in Django. And like, that's because I'm white and that's obviously the character that I play. And I, anyway, I, I appreciate the, the shades of gray that you're willing to put on history that it's, it's more complex than that. It is more complex than that. I will say, uh, unfortunately, the reality is that when it comes to white people and white Christians, the norm, unfortunately, was compromise and complicity. The exceptions mm-hmm. were the people yeah. who pushed back against it. And, and it's almost like reading the Old Testament. Like, like when we read about the story of David and Goliath, we always want to picture ourselves as David. You know, that lone person who's willing to stand up <laughs> yes, against yeah, the giant yeah. opponent, when in reality, we're much more like Israel, this cowering army, like just doesn't want to, to fight against this intimidating foe, in which case would be would be racism. And, and, and we need somebody, a hero to come along and, and kind of save us kind of a thing. So I do think 
we need to have a humility. And honestly, wh- white folks, I mean, just look at the historical record. This is not, you know, trying to uh, point fingers or just pick on white people. That's simply what the historical record tells us. And you can look in any sector, politics, economics, religion, and that is the case. But one of the things that I say at the beginning of The Color of Compromise is that it's not about white guilt in, in whatever sort of definition you want to pack into that. It's more about godly grief, um, which uh, Paul writes about in uh, one of the letters to the Corinthians. They, the Corinthians are doing something bad. Paul, as an apostle, tells them, hey, you need to cut this out. You need to quit it. Speaks the truth in love. Paul is concerned about how the Corinthian church is going to receive those words of correction and that they'll just cut him off because they don't want to hear it. But then he rejoices because they accept what he says and they try to change their ways. And so he, he when he writes back to them, he said, I rejoice because, um, you know, my words to you caused a, a grief, not a worldly grief, but a godly grief that leads to repentance. And so... Yeah. When, when, when we're learning about this history, when it feels like white folks are always the, the bad guy in the scenario, I pray that, that one would feel a sense of godly grief, the kind of grief that has sorrow over injustice and, and people who've gotten hurt, but then the kind of sorrow that doesn't leave you there, but moves you toward turning from that and changing and wanting to go on a better path. Yeah. You had the... Uh it's not novel, but it, it's not normal. The idea of doing lament around uh, a worship gathering, especially in the month of June, uh, as we're remembering and commemorating when uh, slaves were freed. I don't know if I've really ever heard of that before, especially in, in a white church setting, the idea of doing some sort of lament service of what has been in the past and what continues to happen in, in different ways today. How, how can someone imagine what lament would look like for for racism. Yeah. Sung Chan Ra has a whole book um, entitled Prophetic Lament, and I would encourage folks to read that book, Prophetic Lament. Um, Latasha Morrison in her Be the Bridge book includes actual like liturgies, sample uh, worship services uh, that would include lament. And in How to Fight Racism, I talk about lament, particularly in terms of commemorating Juneteenth. And so for folks who don't know, Juneteenth is a mashup of the words June and 19th, and it is the date when uh, enslaved people in Texas first learned of their emancipation, which was several years after the Emancipation Proclamation, but it stands as the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the U.S. Now, I, I, I say in the book that people should commemorate Juneteenth different, in different ways, different communities in different ways. And so for white people, so for black people, it's a celebration of freedom, right? A celebration of liberation. For white people, it would be a prime opportunity for lament, to remember what was done in the name of white supremacy, the lives that were damaged and destroyed in the name of profit oftentimes, and how that fell along racial lines, and not just about race-based chattel slavery, which officially ended uh, after the Civil War with the um, passing of the Reconstruction Amendments, but also the legacy of centuries of enslavement and the narrative around racial difference that has persisted even to the present day. That is a prime opportunity. And what does lament look like? I mean, there's, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? <laughs> um, the Psalms talk about lament. It's exploring the Word of God for expressions of grief, and for cries of justice, 
It's singing songs of lament, not just celebration of the resurrection, but of uh, loss and and grief and and wrongdoing and and confession and repentance. It is um, it is reading a litany of uh, racial justice martyrs, people who have been killed uh, because mm-hmm. of their stances for racial justice, and remembering them and saying their names. It looks all kinds of ways, but the bigger point is we cannot just move forward or rather put it like this in order to move forward with racial yeah. justice we also have to look backward yeah we have to acknowledge it and to acknowledge especially in predominantly white spaces i think it communicates that if you're not white what matters to you matters to us yes. and what we have done matters and your history is our history and we're all connected I, i've had uh, at least Two family, two households who, who mentioned that after our most recent sermon series on race, that they want to become a part of the church. And I'm, I'm not saying that to con- congratulate myself. I'm saying that, honestly, I ripped off some of your stuff. So <laughs> kudos to you as much as it is to me. Um, but it, it didn't seem like it was that big a deal to me. It was like, oh, just a couple sermons. Um, it, it's not like after I preached the book of Ruth, a bunch of like refugees were like, ah, I, I feel safe at your church now because uh, you talked about the experience of a refugee. Um, but it, it obviously meant something to them. I'm not asking you to speak for all black people, but I imagine you've been in white spaces that have and haven't talked about the experience of black people. How, how should, especially white leaders, feel about what they're doing and how it causes those who are uh, different from those on stage to, to feel in the room? Yeah, I imagine the folks who joined your church after those sermons simply felt seen. And I know that's a phrase that maybe gets yep. bandied ab- ab- about, but it's about represent- representation, and it's not that your church has to be majority black or anything like that. It's it's just that um, if you are in some sort of minority, whether gender or racial or ethnic or economically, you need some sign, especially from the leadership, that they know you're there and they understand what you're going through. So that's what those sermon series, that's why it's so important to talk about this stuff from the pulpit and from up front and to hear from church leadership. Um, the other aspect I think is important when, when, when that occurs is, you know, that is a positive sign and a positive outcome, but I can tell you when, when some sort of national, some sort of tragedy hits national headlines, whether it be George Floyd or the acquittal of, you know, another group of policemen or whatever it might be, and that's in national headlines and you say nothing about it in church that sends a very clear signal, even if unintended, that these things are just not a priority for church leadership. And that makes me, I've had these experiences on multiple occasions, um, makes me feel like I am valued for my presence as a photo op, but not really for my personhood. You know, yeah. so it's so it's yeah. not like people are telling me leave because you're black. We're closing the doors because you're black. That's that's never the the message that's being sent. The message that's being sent is we never talk about race, so it's not important to us. <laughs> so, yeah. so your yeah, reality kind of, is foreign to us, and it's not important. Is what it comes yeah. across as. Yeah, uh, that reminds me of a line that uh, a fan of yours, Lecrae, who's mentioned your book as one of his go-to recommendations, he talked about how uh, his experience was, you want me for my skin on stage, but you don't want my essence. Yeah. So it's like, yes. yeah, I'll, I'll be this photo op for you, but you don't want really what's going on. And so we have to talk about these, these things. We have to talk about what's going on. But um, there's a lot that goes on. And there's like 
52 Sundays a year. And if we talked about this every time, like as a pastor, I'm like, I, I can't talk about everything. Yeah. And you, you tell a story in the book about after um, uh, Castillo, am I saying? I Philando like Castillo. Yeah. Castillo. Uh, after, um, it, the week after, you text your pastor and say, hey, I just want to make sure you know about this. And I, I've had the same situation where I, I was on the phone. I, I reached out to a buddy who uh, who's a runner and after uh, Ahmaud Arbery mm. uh, was killed, you know, reached out, called him, and I sat on the phone with him for 30 minutes, and he was absolutely devastated. Mm. And I was like, I, I, I can't do what I was going to do. Uh, it was a Thursday, I was talking to him, and I was like, we, we, we've got to change everything, because yeah. there's something going on that I, I don't want to be, obli- we, we can't be oblivious to. Um, and so that's clearly been something that's happened that I've got, I, I need to hear this, I need to change, I need to pivot. I need to speak about this after um, Charlottesville. Got to talk about this. I, you know, there's um, there's a, a gentleman who's from my tradition, the Churches of Christ, uh, up in Dallas, who had the officer. Yeah, the officer she broke into his apartment, shoots mm-hmm, him, and mm-hmm. thought it was him. You, Both of them shoot Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so there are obviously ones that we've talked about, but you can't talk about everyone, can you? Like it seems like the repetitive nature of this almost would inhibit the ability to have. A Sunday in which we don't talk about it. That's right. So, that's right. How, coach me up. What should I do? What should I be thinking about? That's a fantastic question. Um, and I do most of the preaching at my church, and and that's a question I wrestle with with often as well. So a couple of things. Number one, our 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 sermon series is not enough. It's good, and it's more than a lot of churches have done. But if you think about the breadth and the depth of the problem of racism and white supremacy in the country, of course, you know four weeks, six weeks, whatever, you know, however long that series lasts, it's not going to be enough. Um, it is a good sort of pointed, let's let's tackle this kind of a thing. But that should be an introduction and a beginning, not an ending. And then yeah. if you're talking about preaching, it should be woven in. So what I try to do is in my examples and illustrations, bring back the issue of racial justice, also economic justice, the two are very closely connected. And and that's going to be a sermon example or illustration in almost every sermon I give. Uh, and and f- folks have just gotten used to that. The other thing to do is to plant flagpoles in um, the life of your church around racial justice. So a very low-hanging fruit. Does your church have a public statement on racial justice, uh, particularly something that's posted on your website, where if people are finding you for the first time, they can know, okay, this church has a robust, well thought out and um, clear statement about racial justice. That's going to signal to me, especially as a black person, okay, at least they're thinking about this. Now, those statements may or may not mean much in the actual life of the church, but at least, you know, as an opening and an entryway and an introduction to your church, it's there. The other thing is to embed it in your um, membership classes. And so there, there, there shouldn't be any case where someone can become a member of your church where you have not discussed racial justice from a biblical perspective in depth. I mean, that can be the subject of a whole class session, at least in your membership classes. Uh, so, so the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, we need to be sensitive to current events, but you're right, there's so much going on, we couldn't possibly you know, address each and every instance. But what you've done is created a whole um, matrix of, you've created a whole matrix of uh, ideas and substance 
and ways of addressing racial justice such that even if it's not addressed in a sermon one week, it's on the website, it's in the membership class, we're doing it on this particular you know, racial justice Sunday, we have an ongoing relationship with black churches and pastors. So, so it's, it's, it's part of our living and breathing as the body and not just this occasional and reactive thing. Yeah, so it's almost like you're creating, like this is a normal part of our discourse. And so there's not like one moment like this uh, punctiliar expectation, like this is going to be the thing that says it all, but instead it's like this is a common part of, it, it's what you talked about, how, you, how do you parent your kids, or how do you teach your kids about racism? Like, it's not one conversation. Your comparison was the sex talk. Like, you don't just have one sex talk with your kids, though some parents only get one sex talk with their kids because that's what they want to do. But for yep. me, like, I, we have a sex conversation, which sometimes is too much for me. But the same thing with race, like, it's just like this ongoing conversation that can't be just one, like, I, I love that. And I love the idea of on the website, like, here's the document, this is... This is what you should expect of who we are. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, that, that that's really helpful. That's really helpful stuff. Um, all right, let's get back to the uh, tearing stuff down. Uh, one of the things you, you mentioned in the book is the importance of, and I think you quote Philippians too, like, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. And so yeah. as a nation, we've got to be thinking, at, let me say that again, as Christians who live in this nation, we must be thinking about our past, not of our own selfish ambition as white people, um, or, or people of color, like everyone shouldn't do that, but it, uh, the majority has a responsibility to not look just to their own interest. That's right. <clears throat> and so one of the things that we've seen is you know, the Robert E. Lee statues are coming down. And I don't know about in uh, the Mississippi Delta, but in Texas, there are a few high schools that are named after Mr. Lee. Uh, I I had a roommate in college who went to Midland Lee. I've got a buddy now who went to Tyler Lee. And so, like, I don't know how many there are. There's clearly a lot of them. And so this buddy in Tyler told me that uh, they recently changed the name of the school and they, they kept it so that the acronym is still the same for the school. So like all the football stuff is the same, like on the stadium and the field <laughs> yep. and all that, but it's a different name. But the, it's still like Tyler whatever, because it was Tyler Lee in the same way it's Midland Lee or whatever. Um, so there's still Tyler. And so my buddy goes, okay, we get rid of Lee, but what about Tyler? What, what do we do with that? And what do we do with the city's name? Are we going to change the entire name of the city? And his question was, okay, I, I'm not against this. But how far are we going to go to scrub the name of everyone who's transgressed uh, in a racial way? Like, how, how far do we go? Yeah. And so I was like, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly didn't know much about President Tyler at that point. But what do you, how, do we, how, how do you think we could be thinking about that conversation? I, I think those are great questions to finally be asking, right? Like, so for so long, and this goes back to the Lost Cause mythology, we've, we've not only not asked the question of how far should we go in taking down these names, we've actually lifted these folks up and venerated them, right? So, so understand, it's a, it's, a, it's a big shift in our culture to even be having this conversation, which I think is positive. Um, and, and I think there's also sort of a tonal shift in that question, Um it's not how far should we go? It's how far can we go? And that's a fundamental difference, right? Like how far can we go? Says how far can we go in the name of justice? How far is too far in the name of preventing harm? Those are the questions that I think we should be asking. The other thing I'll say is when it comes to racism, there, there, there are, you know, obviously no perfect people except Jesus, right? So if you name Mm -hmm. anything after anyone, There's going to be something in their past that is distasteful and perhaps even disqualifying in terms of having their name on a building or a a school or something like that. But understand Mm -hmm. that 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 the the particular issue of racism 
has a particularly widespread and pernicious history in our nation that's different from other things. Like adultery, it's, it's never good, right? But it wasn't codified in an economically exploitative system perpetuated over centuries and then extended for another century through Jim Crow segregation, right? So, so the way that racism got formalized in our society means that people we lift up who were racist, it occupies a different place, I think, in the national story because racism, white supremacy, the exploitation that went along with it was such a particular widespread and egregious history. I know that's not going to make sense mm-hmm. to people. This is this is 401 level class. This is not 101 level class. So you, you, you may need to have to get some tutoring and go back and do some further studying for this part. But look, it, it from a horizontal perspective, not all um, sins or or flaws are the same in terms of their impact on people. And so uh, somebody who who proudly, this is the case in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, obviously a denomination formed uh, to perpetuate race-based chattel slavery, and then Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the flagship seminary of the denomination, its four founders, main founders, were all proud slaveholders. And what do you do with that theologically, right? Like, this is, my contention is this is not just a blind spot. This is a foundational error in their ecclesiology, their theological anthropology. Uh, all of it is is corrupted by the idea that human beings could be considered property to be bought, sold, and exploited. Um, so that, to me, it definitely begs the question of whether their name should be on buildings or endowed chairs as as professors, and their names are, are they're named after that um, schools. Of course, as we're we're teaching our children what to value and what justice looks like, so yeah, I'm sorry. You start peeling back the layers of the onion, and it just gets smellier and smellier, uh, unfortunately. And that's the reality. But until we face that historical reality, we cannot move forward productively. Yeah, you mentioned the comparison to adultery, which again, I echo your statement. Bad, not a good thing. Don't do it. And I remembered. Th- someone expressing their feelings of having uh, a a person who committed adultery in the past on stage as someone who themselves has suffered through their spouse committing adultery. And they talked about like how painful it was just to see that person on the stage because it reminded them of the pain that they felt. And you take that and you extrapolate that to like all people who are descendants of those who were subjugated and you go, oh, that might be how that causes... That experience for them. All right. Um, Like you said, let's ground this in Scripture as people of faith and go, okay, what can we do that doesn't look to our own selfish ambition or our vain conceit, but look to the interests of others? And once we have that as a starting part for our conversation, I think we can get somewhere. But uh, until then, I don't know if uh, we're going to do so much of that. But Yeah, and just one more point point on that is a lot of people will look to the veneration of people like Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, you name it, or the Confederate flag and say, well, that's heritage, not hate. And again, I can stack floor to ceiling about how the heritage is hate insofar as it was founded on the subjugation of an entire people group based on the social construction of race. But beyond that, even if you want to cling to the idea that this is about some sort of noble 
historical heritage and culture, okay. But you know that it causes pain to other people. Uh, before uh, November 2020, um, the state of Mississippi still had the flag that had the uh, Confederate battle flag emblem on the state flag. And I would have to pass that state flag two times on my way to the University of Mississippi and two times on the way back. And every single time I saw that flag flying, it was like a stiletto dagger in the heart, just saying, we don't want you here. And if you're going to be here, you're going to occupy a particular place in our society at the very bottom. And so even if for you, that symbol is about heritage, not hate, if you know for me, your neighbor and your brother in Christ, that causes pain and not just me as an individual, but for really a, a whole broad people group, why wouldn't you take it down? Mm-hmm. Well, this goes back to the three parts you're talking about at the very beginning, like the, the template for the book is awareness. Like, you know the story, you know where we come from. Have relationships now with people who could tell you, this is what it makes me feel like. This is the experience I have when I see that flag. And then from there, we build the commitments. And uh, yeah, I, I think... If we don't have relationships, I feel like everything falls apart, and we can be selfish and not consider other people's experience. But relationships, I feel like that ties everything together. Uh, but again, the book, How to Fight Racism, well done. I, I can imagine for someone whose book did as well as yours did, like the follow-up has to have like a lot of pressure. <laughs> and uh, at, like, is that fair? Like, do you feel pressure after... It is. It is a lot of pressure, but you can alleviate that by buying a copy of the book and (laughs) (laughs) making sure it hits these lists. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know what? It's funny that you asked that because, number one, it it is ill-advised to write any book in uh, a PhD program that is not your dissertation. And so um, I did that not once, but twice. Um, And but I felt compelled to do it for a variety of reasons. One, because the issue of racism is an urgent one, and um, it's a passion of mine to want to see that changed and improved. And two, because, you know, just sort of uh, selfishly, I knew that the longer I waited for book number two, the 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 more intimidating it would get to, yes. to write it. Yeah. So it was just like, let's just do it. Let's go. And not think about... Get back. Yeah, yeah get back on that horse right away, man. Exactly, exactly. So... Well, for someone who's writing, who's in the doctoral program, uh, the book comes across as very, like, pop level. It's, it's very accessible for everyone. It's not like this academic treaty that uh, it's going to be, like, requiring you to have your, your lexicon out and a dictionary to explain what all the words are. Like, it's, it's pop level. So, good. Th- that's good. impressive. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully, the, the dissertation is at the appropriate level it needs to be, uh, and I can switch back and forth. Well, that, that stands to be seen. Well, good news is I don't care about your dissertation as much as I care about this book. So the book was great. And uh, good, who cares about the dissertation? I'm kidding. Good luck on that. I'm sure it'll be great. But uh, the book again, How to Fight Racism. Go get a copy, everyone. And uh, Jamar, thanks for the time, man. Thanks for the great questions. I appreciate it. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>